let's let's start. We're in, uh, starting a new series today. Um, uh, Mark part two. We did Mark part one uh, in the build up to Christmas, and uh, this is the second part of that of Mark's gospel. And Mark really is a master storyteller who, bit by bit, reveals more of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And in part one, if you remember back into the autumn term last year, we called it Mark, a journey with Jesus. And we basically looked at how the fact that Jesus is the Lord. He has the authority to forgive sins. He has the the power to command the wind and sea. He's the true shepherd of Israel who walks upon the water. He makes the deaf hear. He makes the mute speak. And all of these are clues pointing to the mind-boggling claim that God, the creator of all things, God, the one who is over all things, God is mysteriously but directly present in the person of Jesus. That Jesus is God himself in flesh. And uh, often, as we read through Mark's gospel, his disciples, those who followed him in the early days, failed to spot the clues. And the religious leaders kind of met him with hard-hearted rejection. They were like, no one anything to do with him. And so as Mark's gospel kind of builds, it's like this excitement and tension building the whole time. And so we're now in part two. We're going to look from chapter 11 today. This is the second half of Mark's gospel, and really it's a turning point. We now, everything from Mark 11 onwards, enters the final week of Jesus's earthly life. And it's all set in Jerusalem, and it now all points towards the cross. So we're calling this part, this series, Mark, A Journey to the Cross. We're going to look at the first 19 verses of, of chapter 11. And this takes place at the beginning of Passover week, which uh, Passover week was at the moment where the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, the people of God, recalled the, their liberation from Israel. Uh, sorry, from Egyptian slavery, how God delivered them from that. So there's this excitement anyway, there's this anticipation, there's this tension building. Crowds are beginning to gather because Jesus is coming. And what's he going to do? And so let's have a look. This passage, like Mark's gospel uh, in its entirety, looks both backwards and forwards. It looks backwards showing the real Jesus, looking how all these Old Testament prophecies are kind of fulfilled in him. But it also looks forward to say the king has come, but the king is coming again. The king has come, but the king is coming again. And and Jesus in this passage, as we'll see, declares his kingship by two things. One, riding on a colt. And two, cleansing the temple. And there's a very sober warning in between. Let's have a look. Now, when they drew near, verse 11, uh, sorry, chapter 11, verse 1. When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And, when, and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. 
And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who had brought in, who bought in the, in the, those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, "Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. The king has come. The king is coming. That's the message of of Mark's gospel. The king is here. So repent. Turn around. Follow him. Believe in him. Follow him. See, the king, Jesus, comes here in meekness. But one day he's coming again in power and authority. He comes here gently. One day he's coming in wrath and judgment. 2 Corinthians 6 2 says, Behold, now is a favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. You know, there's a day coming when that day is too late. When Jesus returns, when the king returns, it's too late to switch sides. It's too late to pledge allegiance. Because on that day, he comes no longer on a cult, but Revelation 19 tells us exactly, verse 11, exactly what he's coming back on. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's come once in meekness. He's coming back in power. Comes once gently. He's coming once riding a white horse in glory, full of majesty, full of power. And on that day, it will be too late to switch sides. Right now, we're in the day of salvation. There's an opportunity right now, in this day, to come bow before the true king, to surrender to him, so that that day coming will not be a day of fear and dread, will be a day of joy and rejoicing because the king is here and he's come to put right every wrong. I just want to spend some time here looking at these verses back in Mark and see how Jesus reveals more of who he is, how he points to that day and how he declares his kingship right now. And the first way he declares his kingship is by riding on a colt. See, Jesus rides into Jerusalem hailed as a king. This is exactly what kings in the ancient world did. Big crowds cheering them. But Jesus does things slightly differently. Yeah, there's big crowds, and yeah, he's riding on a, on a horse, but it ain't a big impressive war horse like those kings would have done. Jesus rides in on a polos, which is basically a baby horse, 
or a little donkey. He's the king. He's spent 10 chapters proving his miraculous power, but he's riding on a little colt that is more suitable for a child. This is a hugely symbolic moment. He could have walked into Jerusalem. I mean, he's already walked from Galilee. That is a long way. Yet just a couple of miles outside, he says, I'm going to ride in on a horse. I'm going to ride in on a colt. And in doing that, he is deliberately pointing back into the Old Testament to an Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. See, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus says, I'm the king but I'm not a king who fits the world's model. I don't look like you might expect. I'm not the one who you think I should be. You're not doing what you think I should do. You see, as we look forward back into Revelation, we see that Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. And in Jesus, we see kind of combined character traits that we just don't see combined in anyone else. He kind of is has these traits in him that are seemingly contradictory in nature and yet they are both found in Jesus. He's both high and almighty and yet he's close and intimate. He has absolute authority and absolute power over all things and yet he displays perfect submission. He has supremacy. You heard it earlier. He holds all things together and yet he displays plays and depends entirely upon his father. He is both the lion who is roaring with power, who really is fighting our battles, and he's the lamb, the sacrifice slain. He combines these seemingly contradictory things in ways that we just, we could just never think are possible. He's the perfect king. He's come once in meekness, And he's coming again in power. And the people knew the symbolism of the cult. They understood the the reference here. They understood the the symbolism. They understood what, what was going on here. You see, they knew Zechariah 9. And they also knew the next few verses of it, which showed that they knew and understood the purpose of Jesus coming. You see, the king rides in on a colt. And then Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10 says, He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. Verse 11 says he will set the prisoners free. Verse 16 says, On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. See, the people recognize this. They understood the symbolic gesture of riding in on a colt. It was not lost on them. And their response was to begin a chant that was based on Psalm 118. These words are lifted right out of Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's the Hosanna. That's what it means. Save us. That's exactly what they say in Mark 11. Save us. Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. See, they understood the symbolism. They recognize who Jesus is and they respond accordingly. Jesus' kingship is recognized. And he displays his kingly rule and he demonstrates his kingship with what he does next cleansing the temple. Verse 15 of Mark 11, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. This is not meek and mild Jesus. 
This is Jesus in anger, overthrowing. What are you doing? Perfect anger. He doesn't. He never sinned. He didn't lose his rag. Displayed righteous anger. And he teaches them, verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And they're shocked by his teaching. Verse 18 says they were astonished by his teaching. Why on earth would they be astonished by his teaching? Well, the key part is understanding verse 17, where he says, My house, which is the temple, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. See, there was this popular belief at the time when the Messiah turned up, he would get purge the temple of foreigners. He'd kick them all out, all the foreigners, get, get rid of them, go. But this is Jesus saying he's for the foreigners. He's an advocate for them. And most modern kind of day, slightly liberal people go, oh, Jesus, I like you. You're a good guy. You're kind of, you're for all people. Yeah, yeah, we, we like this guy. That's, that's not shocking. That's good, isn't it? But something else much more astonishing is going on here that caused their reaction. See, this scene is taking place in the temple. And the temple's not some small place. It's absolutely massive. If you've got one of those Bibles that has diagrams and pictures at the back, this is, at some point you should have a look at it. It's a huge place, is the temple in Jerusalem. And this particular action takes place in the, what was called the outer court, which was the court of Gentiles. Now, that was the place where non-Jews could go and pray and worship God. They're, they're the, that's the all nations. That was their place where they could come and encounter the true God and, and pray and worship him. You see, this is Jesus acting out another Old Testament text. To explain what he's doing here, Jesus quotes directly from Isaiah 56. So Isaiah 56, verse 6 to 8, this is Isaiah prophesying hundreds and hundreds of years before, says, and the foreigners, verse 6, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, verse 7, this is the key bit, these, the foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares I will gather yet others to him beside those who are already gathered. Wow. This is Jesus fulfilling all the plans of God. This has always been God's plan. God calls Israel his people, but he always had a plan for people from other nations, other peoples of the world to be gathered in and added to his people. Jesus' kingship then is for all peoples. And in clear, Jesus in clearing, this is stunning, in Jesus in clearing out the temple is doing two things. First thing he's doing is he's rebuking the temple authorities. He's condemning them. They were not doing as they were supposed to be doing. Israel was always supposed to be a light for the Gentiles. From the very beginning, they were blessed in order to be a blessing for other nations. And here, the dwelling place of God, Jerusalem, the city of God, they're not doing as they're supposed to be doing. They're actually stopping the other nations. They're stopping the Gentiles who might want to worship and pray. And Jesus calls, it a, calls them a den of robbers. 
And he's echoing right there, way back into the prophecy of Jeremiah. He's echoing the words of God in Jeremiah 7, where God condemns Israel for not being fruitful, for being unfruitful and for being unfaithful. And that's what the cursing of the fig tree is all about. It was supposed to be fruitful, and then Jesus comes and sees that it's not producing fruit, and so he condemns it. See, that fig tree looked like a hive of activity. It looked like loads of things were going on. It was full of leaves. It looked good. But on closer inspection, it had no fruit. It was not doing what it was supposed to do. And it's exactly the same with the temple. There's this hive of activity. It looks busy. It looks impressive. Lots of people here. But as you get there, you realize they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. There is no fruit. And Jesus condemns them. Back in Jeremiah 7, God condemns the people and declares that the temple will one day be destroyed. And Jesus quotes these words. So he's in, in cleansing the temple, he's rebuking the t- temple authorities. And the second thing he's doing is clearing the way, figuratively speaking, for all the nations now to come and join in the worship of God alongside the faithful Israelites. You see, this is why they were shocked. This is why they were astonished. Because they understood the significance they understood the history of the temple. You see, the history of the, of the tabernacle, which don't forget is the dwelling place of God on earth. That's what the tabernacle is. It's the, the dwelling place of God on earth. The history of it starts all the way back at the beginning, back in Genesis. Right back as God creates and he creates the, the garden of Eden. And the garden of Eden, the creation right at the beginning, it was this sanctuary. It was a perfect sanctuary. It was the dwelling place of God on earth. It was a paradise. It was a, a place of shalom. It was a place of peace and joy and love and flourishing because God dwelt there. It was where he was. That's what it was always supposed to be. That's what the earth was always supposed to be, a place of the presence of God, of flourishing, of joy, of hope, of, of perfect everything because God dwelt there. But we know the story Mankind rejects God's rule. Mankind decides, you know what, thank you, we'll do it our way. Mankind decides, no, I'm not going to build my life on that. I'm going to build my life on this. I'm going to give other things, let other things have ultimate meaning in our lives now. And when we did that, we lose the sanctuary. We're cast out of Eden. We're shown the door, literally shown the door. Genesis 3 verse 24 has this picture of, of, the, of people, Adam and Eve the, being kicked out of the Garden of Eden at the door, the gate. They, they're kind of pushed out. And Genesis 3 24 tells us at the east of the garden, God placed a cherubim and a flaming sword, barring the way into the presence of God. And it says of the sword, it turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, now there is a sword there where once you could access into the the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God, now there is a sword there that no one can escape, that no one can get past, that no one can go over, no one can go round, no one can go under. It bars the way into the presence of God. See, in turning away from God, everything gets broken. And turning from God always has horrible consequences. When something, think about it this way, when something terrible happens... It's not, it's not okay to just say, oh, I'm sorry, can we just forget about it and move on? When despicable acts of wickedness happen, think of stuff you see in the news or stuff in a room this size, plenty of people have experienced something. When despicable acts of wickedness happen, 
It's not okay for the perpetrator just to say, oh, I'm sorry, can we move on? Can we forget that happened? That would be injustice. That wouldn't be right. Now, I'm not talking about vindictiveness or, or vengeance or anything like that, but if you've been wronged, you know, like properly wronged, I'm not just talking about someone just slightly upset you, something of, of evil happened to you, you know that sorry, sorry, it isn't really enough. Something more is required. Some kind of costly payment to put things right. And that's exactly what the flaming sword is. It's the sword of eternal justice. Nobody can get back into the presence of God unless they go under the sword, unless you pay for what has happened. But the truth is, no one, no human being can survive that. So we can never get back into the presence of God. But God, from the moment that sin first entered the world, he had a plan. And he established, first of all, the tabernacle and then the temple to be the dwelling place of God, the presence of God on earth. That in the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, and then in the temple, that was where God dwelled on earth. And it's why, if you read the descriptions of what the Ark of the Covenant or the tabernacle or the temple was, you see that there are cherubims being placed on the eastern side. Why? Because on the east of the Garden of Eden, that is where a cherubim was placed. So in the furnishings and the kind of structure of the tabernacle and the temple, it's all symbolic, it's all significant, it's all looking back. This is where God dwells. This, the tabernacle, now the temple, the most sacred place on earth. And in the middle of the temple was the Holy of Holies. It's like a cube thing. And in front of it was a thick veil. Because behind that veil was what we call the Shekinah presence of God. God himself, the fullness of his glory there. And so it was a terribly dangerous place to go. God so other, so holy, no one could stand in his presence without being consumed. None can survive the presence of God. But once a year, the high priest could go back there briefly, but only if he carried out blood sacrifice. Why blood sacrifice? Think back to Genesis 3 right now. Verse 24, there's no way into the presence of God without going under the sword. And here's the thing that is so stunning about what Jesus says here in Mark 11. Because up until this point, the glory of the Lord, the presence of God was confined to tabernacles and clouds and temples. Yes, once a year a priest could go in on behalf of the Jewish people, but what about the rest of us? How will we ever get to paradise? How are we ever gonna know the, the peace and the joy that being in the presence of our maker brings? You see, this is what all of the prophets throughout the Old Testament kept saying was coming. One day, the glory of the Lord will no longer be confined to one place. There is a day coming, Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2 verse 14, there is a day coming when the glory of the Lord will once again cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That which at the beginning, that will happen again. There is a day coming when the glory of the Lord will not be confined but will be everywhere. And Jesus, by riding on a colt, points back to Zechariah and he says, here, I'm the king and in Doing so, he also says, that day is here now. Because later in Zechariah's prophecy, 
In chapter 14 of Zechariah, verses 20 and 21, it says, when the Messiah comes back, it says, on that day there shall be inscribed on the belts of the horses, holy to the Lord, and this is a key, incredible verse, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judea shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. What on earth does that mean? It's stunning, but what does that mean? Well, in the holy of holies, there were sacred pots that were only allowed to be used in that one holy spot. But Zechariah says someday every pot in the kitchen will be as holy as those pots. In other words, the whole world is one day going to become the holy of holies. The whole world one day is going to be filled with the glory and the presence of God. And in fact, this entrance that Jesus makes into Jerusalem is all pointing forward to that day. Because even back into Mark 11 verse 8, even the palm branches that are being waved is all about looking forward to that day when the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Psalm 96 says that the the trees of the woods will sing for joy before the Lord when he comes to rule the earth. Isaiah 55 says the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, O God, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And it says the coming of the Messiah is going to usher all of this in. He's going to bring back the glory of God. See, the Messiah is going to be the ultimate priest. He's going to be the temple. And he's going to be the one who removes the sword from barring us from the presence of God. Isaiah 53, verse three, prophesies that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse seven says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Verse eight says, he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And when John in the book of Revelation looks at the throne right now. He looks at the throne, the place of ultimate power in the universe because it's where God sits. He sees there on the throne the slaughtered lamb, the greatest kingly triumph in the history of the world. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, He went under the sword and it broke his body. But stunningly, at the same time, the sword was broken too. Because in the death of Christ, there was also the death of death forevermore. He took the sword for you and he took the sword for me. And that's the reason why we'll see it in a few weeks' time in Mark 15. The moment Jesus dies, the veil in the temple is torn in two. It is ripped literally from top to bottom because now the temple is obsolete because now it's no longer needed because now the presence of God is no longer confined to clouds or temples. The curtain is torn in two and the presence of God is now breaking out everywhere. And so when you put your trust in Jesus... When you surrender to the king, when you repent, when you turn around, when you believe and when you follow, he brings that power of the presence of God into your life. It's called the Holy Spirit. And someday, this is stunning, someday he's going to bring it into the whole world and he's going to renew everything. Now, we're not there yet. 
But that's where we're heading. And on that day, as the king returns for his people, he won't be on a colt, but he'll be on a mighty white horse. He'll be coming as the king of kings, as the Lord of lords, the one who rules and reigns with absolute supremacy. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's coming as the king of kings. He's coming as the king over all the nations. He's coming as the king over all nature. Until he comes again, there's a day of amnesty. There's a day of forgiveness. There's a day of patience. He's ready to save all who receive him as savior and all who treasure him as king. You can come to him now. Do you know him? Do you know him? Does he know you? Do you know him? See, the king has come. And the king is coming. Come to him. Know him. Receive him. Live your life in allegiance to him. See, coming to Jesus is recognizing that, yes, he's savior. He forgives our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he's removed our transgressions. Wonderful savior. But he's also king who we submit every area of our lives to. Yes, he's the helper. And yes, he sends the spirit as the helper, our helper to help us in every area. But he's also the Lord who we bow down before. He's a king and he rules. Then, now, forevermore. And you can't say, come in savior, but stay out king. It's not the way it works. You can't say, come in helper, but stay out Lord. I have a first name and a second name. You can't say, come in James, but stay out silly. It's just daft. I mean, it's daft for lots of reasons, but, it's, but it don't work. It's all of me or none of me. Jesus says, it's all of me or it's none of me. And this is not about external appearances it's not about looking the part. It's not about doing religious activity. It's the lesson of the fig tree right there. It's not about looking it. It's about being it, about knowing him. Can you guys come around? It's about your heart. The king has come. The king's coming again. And he has made a way for you and I to come into the presence of God. A way which up until the point of Jesus on the cross was barred. It was barred for normal people like you and me. He's removed the sword, brothers and sisters. He's removed the sword. The presence of God is no longer confined to clouds and temples and tabernacles and arcs. The presence of God is with us now. Do you know him?